Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend and Chabruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Sukkah, daf Mem Chet, page 48. We're getting into our last almost week of uh, Masachet Sukkah. We posted our CM information. We will be squeezing in, that's how Ann and I feel, a CM, God willing, on August 29th. We promise you it will not be longer than 49, uh, 45 minutes. We know that it's a very busy day for people but we still wanted to market. We have a special speaker from Naot Kidumim. So please uh, check Facebook, email us, or the WhatsApp group uh, for sign of information. Um, and we look forward to finishing this next Masachet with uh, everybody who listens and learns along with us. Uh, this page has uh, three Mishnayos, which we're going to read all three and talk a little bit about. And I'll start with the first one. Ha-halavah So the obligation to say halal and also this specific mitzvah of rejoicing, right, on Sukkot is for all eight days. So the Mishnah basically says, well, how is this so? It teaches us that a person is obligated to say halal and to do this mitzvah of simcha and also to have this, you know, kavod or this reverence, I guess, for Yom Tov uh, on this uh, on this last day, meaning this eighth day on Shemini Atzeret, the way that he would for the other days of Sukkot. And so the Gemara begins with a typical Gemara question, which is Menahani Mile, right? From where do we actually learn this? How do we know that the eighth day also has this obligation of Simcha? V'tanu Ravanan, V'tanu Ravanan, and so here they quote that the rabbis teach Vahayita Ach Sameach. So this mitzvah of simcha comes from Devarim chapter 16, verse 15, where it says, ach, right, you should be, um, you shall be sort of, ach sameach, I guess would be like, some English translations are all together joyful. And so it includes this evening of the last day of the festival. But the Gemara asks, maybe, what this verse is really, this pasuk is really coming to say, right? Is it including the evening of the eighth day? Maybe it's coming to include only the evening of the first day. Because they're paying attention to that this word, it doesn't say the pasuk, it says, so ach is, is there to obviously pay attention to something. So the question is, is the ach there just to say we only have Simcha on the first night, right? The first night of Sukkot. Or is the Ach there to include um, the eighth night? And so the Gemara goes on with a little bit more of a discussion about this. Right? What made you think to include the evening of the last day with Simcha and to exclude the evening of the first day, Right? And so the Gemara says, and I just thought this was a nice answer, that will include the evening of the last day because there's Simcha already before it. And so therefore, we understand that this is just going to be a continuation of the Simcha. And I exclude the evening of the first night because there's no actual rejoicing Right, because we don't actually have an obligation to eat the korban chagiga um, uh, on that, or any of the the special sacrifices that we do on the afternoon beforehand. 
So they really pay close attention to this word ah, and, you know, sort of make this distinction between what is the difference between the first night and the last night. And I think what they're ultimately trying to say is there's this special type of simcha on Shemini Atzeret because it is preceded by all these other days of simcha, which is different than the first night of Sukkot. Yes, they're making it a technical thing, maybe about the actual korbanot, but I think it's also this overall, you know, feeling. There's something very special about that last eighth day that's very different than the first night of, of, of Sukkot. And, and it was nice to see that reflected in the Gemara here. I really like that insight. And I, I think there's something to, to be said to remember that also, because especially when we have a lot of Yantif, you know, a lot of Yantif and then a lot of Shabbos and then a lot of Yantif, which is kind of how it's set up this year, um, which is still not three day Yom Tovim, but still, right? I feel like sometimes people get in this mode and Shemini there, it's really towards the end, you know, like um, of let's call it Chagim fatigue, right? Like, oh my goodness, it's just so much. And then I think I want to say that I, I really like this this take you said just now at the end, where there's something particularly joyous about having the simcha of Yom Tov after you've had kind of like the warm up of the simcha of Yom Tov, as opposed to just coming into it from work a day, whatever, and and kind of we're already in the mode of of celebrating. And if we can keep that in mind and not succumb to that fatigue, I know I have in the past, certainly, right? Like that, I think there's something to be to be said for that, that there's something particularly joyous about it. Okay, so I'm going to go to the next Mishnah, um, which kind of takes us back a step. Sukkah, sukkah Shiva, Ketzad, meaning we're talking about the mitzvah of the sukkah, the mitzvah to dwell in the sukkah. Shiva, that's the seven days. Ketzad, how is it done? How does one fulfill one's obligation of the sukkah for seven days. So what happens? The idea is that if you're saying that it's the seven days, how do you fulfill this obligation for seven full days? Because then you go straight into the yontif of this of Yomashmini, right? So the Mishnah says, well, you finish eating on the seventh day, right? Don't take down your sukkah. So this is an interesting way to answer how you should fulfill the seven days in the sukkah. It sounds kind of like how you like, don't take it, don't dismantle your sukkah does not sound like um, an, a positive act of fulfillment here. But the idea is that your obligation to be in that sukkah continues until the very last minute, the very last second of the day. So even though you may have finished your meal, don't take down that sukkah because you still you know, are still obligated in it. And of course, the the theory behind not taking it down is that even if you're not going to be using it, let's say you're leaving town, you know, the day before, you don't take it down in advance because it's it's kind of like um, a disparaging thing to do. You know, this idea that like, oh, I don't need that sukkah anymore. It's not it's not so nice, or at least that's the implication that it could look that way. Once you hit the afternoon, then you can take all your stuff out of the sukkah because there you're going to de- demonstrate your respect that you're giving to the eighth day, which does not have the obligation of sukkah, nor should your stuff, your, all these things that you're going to be using, your kalim, the vessels that you're going to be using for yuntif on the eighth day, you're going to use them in your house. You can already take them out of your sukkah in preparation for that eighth day that you will be celebrating in your house. So the bar goes on to ask, you know, but what if you don't have any vessels? Which I think is a really interesting question. What should you do if you don't have any kalim, any stuff in your sukkah? And the Gemara says, 
Meaning, how can that be? How can it be that you've been living in your sukkah and you have no stuff in there? What were you using? So rather, the Gemara says, okay, wait, that's not that's not the question that we meant. We weren't really asking, uh, you know, what if you didn't have any kalim? We mean, what if you don't have a place to put the, the kalim that you have? Right, you're eating in your sukkah. Where are you going to put your old your your stuff that's going into the house? What if you don't have a place to put it? So the idea here is that you want to make sure that you are making it clear that you are not continuing to celebrate Sukkot in your sukkah, right? You have to make it clear that if you're still in your sukkah and it's no longer Sukkot, you are not using the sukkah to be a sukkah. You happen to be there because for whatever reason, you can't go into your house. Um, so the point being that if you were to treat it as Sukkot, right, uh, uh, you know, yet another day of Sukkot, we, you'd have a violation of Baltosif, the uh, the mitzvah against um, adding to any of the mitzvah that we have. Baltosif or Baltigri, we can't we can't add and we can't take away from the mitzvah that we have. So Rabbi Chiyabar Rab, Rab says, take lower the roof, lower the schach by four tzvachim. When it says by four, it means by four tzvachim, so that the sukkah is going to be no longer fit. It's no longer going to be a kosher sukkah. So then you won't have a problem of anybody thinking that you're treating it as an extra day of sukkah, of Sukkot, rather, right? It's no longer a sukkah. It's simply, I don't know, shelter, right? Outside. And then Rabbi Yoshua ibn Levi says, no, you could light a lamp inside the sukkah. And we have to understand a little bit more, and we will in a moment, why lighting a lamp inside the sukkah, um, which of course is here, it's it's a candle, um, why that would be uh, taking away from it being Sukkot, and part of the issue is that it's prohibited during the during Sukkot. But why that is, we're going to see the Gemara is going to explain in just a moment. The Gemara says, "Well, one second. They're not really disagreeing. They're not disagreeing about the halacha. They're coming up with different solutions for different places. Meaning, for for halan, that's lanu, lanu who live outside Eretz Israel." So Lahu, that's them, those people who do live in Eretz Israel, meaning the people who live in Israel could bring down the roof, they could bring down the schach a bit, since there's no no longer ha- have a reason to be sitting in a sukkah. But the people who live outside of Eretz Israel, who are supposed to indeed sit in that sukkah on that eighth day, because they're not sure, right? We just talked about this, this idea that it's a sveik diomad, you're not sure whether Yandif really is that day or the next day, meaning the previous day or that day. Um... So then because of that uncertainty that it right, might really be the seventh day of Sukkot and not the eighth day, so then you have to make a way to separate between this is the eighth day and this is the days that you're certain that it's Sukkot. So the the lamp, lighting a lamp in there, doesn't invalidate the Sukkah as a Sukkah, but you're doing something that's dramatically different. We'll see why again in just a moment. And then that seems to be enough for those who live outside of Eretz Israel. Um, to to be able to say, um, if this is not the day of Yantif, then I, if this is not the day of Sukkot, then here we are in Yantif, and lo and behold, it's really very different. So the Gemara says as follows: We're talking about Hatenach Sukaktana. That distinction, that resolution, really, to say that we're talking about two different cases, two different places. That makes sense if the Sukkah that you're talking about is a small Sukkah, because the prohibition against lighting a lamp or candle, really, in and in 
in the sukkah is if you're talking about a small sukkah to begin with, the concern is, of course, that you don't want to risk fire. But and and then you know putting lighting a lamp would make that distinction that you have to be careful not to risk fire in a sukkah. So in this case, you get to do it, and then it won't really be considered your sukkah. But But in a large sukkah, there's no prohibition against lighting that candle to begin with. So then you don't have that distinction between how you might conduct yourself on the seventh day versus the eighth day. So then, and then, so then, what what do you do to say that there's going to be a, a clear distinction um, if you don't have a place to take all your stuff out and move out of the sukkah? So the Gemara goes on to say, this is exactly the distinction that we're talking about somebody who brings his kalim for, you know, pots and pans and so on into the sukkah. The Amarava, Mani Mechla, Baramim Talo. Sorry, baramim talalta, mani mishta bimetalalta. So Rava says that the all of the kalim that you would use, all the vessels you would use for your regular cooking, whatever, would be taken out of the sukkah. But drinking mani mist mistaya, mistya, um, all of the drinking vessels you could leave in the sukkah. So the moment you leave the pots and pans in the sukkah. You're you're kind of giving off this impression that the, the fact that you understand that the sukkah is no longer being used for for doing the mitzvah of sukkah, right? Because then it's becoming like a repository of your stuff, let's say, as opposed to um, as opposed to sitting down to your yontif meal. So there's a detail here. There's a couple of questions I actually have on that I'd like to delve deeper into this about the distinction between the pots and pans versus the drinking vessels. But as far as the basic sense of the text, that's, that is what it is. And um, we're not going to have time to delve deeper now. But I do want to just make the point that there is always more more delving to be doing. We have one more Mishnah. Take it away. So this last Mishnah is actually a pretty lengthy Mishnah. Before I get to it, I, I just want to make the one comment. I love this distinction the Gemara makes between sort of, well, the first question where they ask, like, how could there be no Kalim in the Sukkah? Um, you know, it's just such an obvious question about how the sukkah is really used. Um, the second is this distinction they make between different kalim, um, which I think is really true, right? Like we also would use, you know, different types of, uh, we understand kalim. Yes, it's a generic term, but there are different types of kalim. And then the last piece is, you know, unlike Masachet Sachem, there's a lot more talk here about the difference between what happened in the diaspora versus what happened in Eretz Yisrael. Um, and I'm not sure I've totally formulated why that is. And now, I mean, some of it is probably just because Sachem was very Korban focused, but it's uh, it's interesting to see. And I just want to sort of note that. Um, okay, so now we'll get to the last Mishnah here, which is a pretty lengthy Mishnah, Nisach HaMayim Ketzad. So how did they do this water libation that was done uh, during the festival of Sukkot? Slochit shel zahav machzeket so they would basically fill this golden jug with that has the capacity or you can fill with three logs of water from uh, the Meishiloach, which is a specific pool in Yerushalayim. So they would get to the water gate and they would make a tekiah, a trua, and a tekiah. Then the Kohen would go up the ramp of the Mizbech and turn to his left. And 
and there were two silver basins there. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Shiltzirayu. Rabbi Yehuda says they were of limestone. Elishayu Mushcharin Pnei Hayayin, but they were blackened uh, because wine was put in them also, and therefore they looked um, silver. So again, I think just to point out, these are one of these Mishnayos where we see sort of because these were being written after the a couple of hundred years after the destruction of the temple, there's like a little bit of a question about what actually took place. And they were perforated. They had these two thin nose-like, uh, like sort of protrusions, right? One of the basins, right, which we'll find out later is the one for the wine. It was broad. And one was thin. And again, the Gemara explains later because wine is thick and water is thin. So they would both flow to get together simultaneously. So I guess this is like a physics lesson here, right? The one on the, the basin to the west was the one for the water. The one to the east was for wine. Let's say you mixed it up and you poured the water in the wine one or the wine one in the water one, you still fulfilled your obligation. Rabbi Yehuda held that you only needed one lug of water and not the three that was mentioned previously. And to the person who was doing the pouring of the water, they would say, raise your hands. Because one time there was a tzaduki who intentionally poured the water on his feet because the tzadukim did not believe in that you needed to do this niso chamayim at all. And all the people threw their etrogim on him. So they would sort of hold the water up to show that they were going to actually pour it in the basin. Just as they would do it during the weekday, they would also do it on Shabbat. Uh, but they would fill up the jug basically before Shabbat, right? Let's say let's say the water spilled out from Arab Shabbat to Shabbat or was left exposed. So then they would just take water um, from the basin that was in the temple courtyard. Because if the wine or the water was left out was exposed, it was it was left uh, it, it was left that you couldn't use it. So that's basically uh, the Mishnah. And again, we're going to start with the Menahani Mule. So again, this is super interesting. This is not a pasuk that is taken from one of the five books, but it's taken from Yeshayahu chapter 12, verse 3, right? That with joy, you will draw out the water. With Sasson, you will draw out water. And so this is where they sort of get to this idea of doing Nisu Hamayim. And then what follows is this very strange page, which again, because of the daf, I did not have as much time to sort of figure out what exactly is going on here. And I'm sure somebody has a great commentary about this particular passage. Hainu Tremine, there were two heretics, Chachmei Sasson and Chachmei Simcha. One of the name of Sasson, one of the name of Simcha. Amr le Sasson le Simcha, Ana Adifna Minach, so Sasson says to Simcha, I'm better than you, because this is another puzzle from Yeshayahu, chapter 35, verse 10, says they shall get joy and Simcha, right? Sasson and Simcha, and Sasson comes before 
<coughs> excuse me, comes before Simcha. Uh, then he says, Amr le Simcha le Sasson. Simcha says to Sasson, Ana Adifa Mimeh, right? He says, No, I'm better than you. Why? Dirtiv, Simcha Vesasson le Yehudi. And here he quotes a pasuk from Esther, right? Uh, chapter 8, verse 17. So based on this pasuk, we see that Simcha is before Sasson. Amr le Sasson le Simcha, Chad Yoma Shavuch. Right? So Sasson then says to Simcha, one day they will dismiss you and make you a messenger. That's what a parvanaka is. And there he says, quotes a pasuk, right? Here's another pasuk from Yishayel from chapter 55, verse 12. You will go out with happiness. So like Simcha like leaves is the messenger. He says, one day they will they will dismiss you and draw you with water. And then he quotes the pasuk that we initially started with, Ushaftamayim b'sasar. So, um, so again, I don't know entirely what this means, but then they get to another heretic. There's another heretic story, or for the sake of time, I won't read it, where there's another heretic named Sasson who comes to Rabbi Avahu and also sort of uses his name to say, by quoting Ushaftamayim b'sasar, that sort of, you will draw water from me, right? And then Rabbi Avalu basically said, says back to him, you know, it says with Sasson. So that means that you will eventually become like a wineskin and will draw water with it, meaning you're not that great, as great as you as you think you are. So I, I don't know, Anne, if you have a better answer of what exactly is going on here. I, I found this section to be very interesting. It's clearly some type of esoteric text here. Well, the part there's several things I love about it. Um, first of all, the fact that the sidestep or whatever into this kind of discussion, right? It's long and it's detailed and it's personification and it's playful in that it's you know taking these you know these terms which you know it's a song everybody knows a song right? and and turning them into people and not only people but a heretic right? Like there's something very um, you know, I, I don't know how this came to be, but there's something um, on the one hand puzzling and on the other hand, to me, very pleasing that it is here. Um, beyond that, you know, why this is the way it is? Possibly, I would say that instead of this being personification, um, perhaps there really were heretics. And rather than shaming them by using their names, you know, Sasson and Simcha were used as um, masks, so to speak. And, you know, being... Um, What's the word? Like, Lashon Saginahur, meaning it's not happiness to have heretics in your midst, but rather than calling them, you know, trouble and more trouble, they call them Sasson Vesimcha. It strikes me that this is probably what's happening here in terms of the, the text of the Gemara itself, but I like the the idea that we're playing with the rejoicing versus, um, you know, versus heresy as a... Uh, as a medium, as a discussion piece, um, beyond any actuality that might have happened, but I have the feeling that this was something that was a little bit more real in the lives of the of Chazal, and this is their way of presenting it in a more palatable, kind kind of way. Right, and I think what's also interesting here is you know we're using these words of sason v'simcha, like things that connote happiness, and here they connote like a a heretic. But this certainly is a peculiar story here. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. 
Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 